Good morning again, and if you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open it to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. This morning we'll be in verses 30 through 37 as we continue this sermon series that we've entitled Then Calvary as we attempt to finish up at some point preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And as we sometimes need to do, we end up with a sermon series within a sermon series, if you will. And today we're going to kind of begin that as Jesus begins his journey physically to Jerusalem, to Calvary, ultimately to the cross. And what we see in these next couple of chapters anyway is Jesus traveling, moving, and talking with his disciples along the way. He uses this opportunity to teach them some lessons. Some of the lessons are about the cross. We'll see some today are. And some of them are just about the Christian life and what it means to be a follower. And It almost seems as if Jesus is using this opportunity to say some of those things that need to be said before he goes to the cross and ultimately is resurrected and then ascends back up into heaven. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. God's perfect and inspired word says this. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children of my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so again, we have this very quick, even short lesson, a couple of lessons that Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples as they begin to walk. And again, I just want to start looking at verse 30 again. It says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. Again, we understand that Jesus has been doing the bulk of his earthly ministry in that Galilean area. He's been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's now went up around the north part, and he's beginning to descend through Galilee and to head south, ultimately to Calvary. It's interesting that it says, again, he doesn't want anyone to know it. He was kind of being a little sneaky, if you will, as he walks through Galilee. We just know that there's a couple of reasons he's doing that. One, because he has an appointment. He has an appointment on a certain day at a certain time with the cross of Calvary. He can't be late. He must make it. And so he's going there. But we also know that Jesus has spent his time. He said his peace. He's told them the gospel. He's shown them the miracles. He's proven to them over and over who he is. And so therefore, now his work is done in that place and he's moving on to finish the work. He's going on to finish what God has sent him to this earth to do. I love this mission mentality that Jesus has. He knows that this is my time. His time is coming soon, and he must go to Calvary. And so he sneaks through. He doesn't want to be delayed. He doesn't want to be held up by the crowds. And so he goes on. Again, not shorting anyone. Jesus has spent a huge amount of time here. 
He's shared the gospel. He's done the things he's supposed to do. But now his time is to move on from Galilee and to move to Calvary. And so we see that physical descent, if you will, of Jesus through the region to Calvary. But as he's walking on this way, as he's going through and as he's trying to be quiet about it, he has his 12 disciples with him. And as I said before, he seeks to teach them along the way. And so in verse 31, it says this, For he taught the disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise again the third day. Jesus, on the way to Calvary, takes time to teach the disciples what's going to happen at Calvary. He says the fulfillment of the plan of God is about to happen. The fulfillment of the reason that I came, the kingdom is about to be established. You see, remember, these guys are looking for the kingdom. They're looking for Jesus to set up his kingdom. They're looking for Jesus to assert his authority. And what we see is that Jesus is doing that very thing, but he's getting ready to do it in the exact opposite way in which these men would have thought. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And so he tells them very clearly and very plainly. And Jesus looks at these men and he says these very simple words, I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to be raised again. I love the certainty with which Jesus speaks to them, don't you? He just says, listen, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm in complete control of this situation. Nothing is beyond my control. There's no speculation about what is about to happen. I'm going to be betrayed first. Then they're going to kill me. And then after that, I'm going to raise again. We said this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this. But what an amazing statement for Jesus to say. It would be one thing if he knew that they were going to kill him. There could be a humanly aspect of Jesus looking at those people thinking, man, they really hate me. Have you ever been in a place like that and you think, I'm not sure anyone here likes me at all. You just kind of walked in and it gets really uncomfortable. I walked into a few gyms and I thought, I don't know that anybody here wants me here. And Jesus looks at the world around him and it would have been easy from a human standpoint to say, well, they're probably going to kill me. They killed John. They killed the prophets. They're probably going to kill me. But Jesus isn't speaking from a human standpoint. He's speaking from the standpoint of being the sovereign son of God. They will betray me. They will kill me. And because I'm God, I will rise again. You see, there wasn't any promise. John probably even thought it. John the Baptist is sitting in the jail cell. He probably thought, I'm probably going to die. He could probably see the writing on the wall. I'm probably going to die. But he didn't have the courage or the wisdom or the ability to say, I'm going to live again. But Jesus says, don't you worry, boys. I'm coming back. In three days, I'm going to be raised again. I want you to notice something. Now, some of your Bibles may say this a little bit differently, but I want to make sure that we see this point because this speaks to who God is. So I want you to see something in this verse that's really important in what Jesus says. So look again at verse 31. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. The Son of Man is being betrayed. Some of your Bibles may say going to be betrayed or will be betrayed. But what we see in this, this word shows us that the actions are already happening. Now we know that at least the Pharisees at this moment have had their fill of Jesus. They want him dead. At this moment, we know that the Pharisees want him dead. But 
We also don't know that they have any definite plan. We don't know that they have any definite way. We know that they haven't spoken to Judas yet. Judas hasn't left the group yet. None of those things have transpired. And yet when Jesus speaks, he speaks with certainty saying that he is being betrayed. R.C. Sproul says that that word betrayed should have been interpreted delivered because it wasn't the hands of man that were turning Jesus over. It was the sovereign hand of God. You see, at this moment, we need to step out of the human aspect for a moment and think about the eternal sovereign plan of God in this moment. Jesus knows that at this very moment, God is hardening the heart of Judas. Jesus knows that at this very moment, God is allowing Satan himself to stir up anger and hatred in the Pharisees to the point that they would turn him over to the Romans and ultimately they would crucify him. Jesus knows that at this moment, the sovereign king of all the universe is counting down the exact moment to when Jesus will say, it is finished. You see, sometimes we think about this and we think that all of these things just, well, it was one Passover day or no, the time is coming. God is working. God is delivering up his son. When it says in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God gave his only begotten son, at this moment, God is giving his son up. He is just as much given up at this moment as he is at the cross. Jesus is as good as dead because he will die and he will raise again. And so we see this amazing process happening. We see this plan of God coming into fruition right before their eyes. They can't see it. Here's what's good news about that. God's doing the same thing today. He's doing the same thing in your lives, and he's doing the same thing in the life of the world today. God is moving and working in his sovereign and good plan in your life, and you don't know what he's doing. He's working in the hearts of people around you. He's working in people you've yet to meet. He's working in situations you've yet to encounter, and he's still working it out for your good, and you don't even know it yet because he's the sovereign king of all of the universe. Amen? He's also working this out. There's going to be a day when this Jesus that was betrayed, killed, and raised again, there's going to be a day when he returns to this earth and shows that he's the king of glory. And in the same way, there's an exact moment in time. It will not be a a happenstance. It will not be a random moment. There is a time that has been set that's in the Father's hand when Jesus will break through and he will show us that he is king and God today by his sovereign hand is working those things out. But nobody knows the time of the day. But there's a time and a day. And that time and day is coming. And I pray it comes soon. But either way, God is working out his plan. And these disciples, I said a couple weeks ago, there's too many times that I identify with Peter and Mark and not in Acts. And there's a lot of times that we as a church identify with the disciples more in Mark and the gospels than we do in Acts. And look what the disciples, look what happens in verse 32. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand even though just in chapter 8, Verse 31, it says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed after three days. Rise again. They didn't understand after they had been patiently taught, after they had been told over and over. I think if we were honest, all of us would find ourselves in that boat every once in a while, wouldn't we? 
where there's been things in our lives that God has been working on and shaping and molding and convicting and guiding and directing and we just don't seem to get it. But what a beautiful thing that Jesus just keeps telling them, doesn't he? He just keeps telling them. He might as well, it's going to happen anyway. So Jesus patiently teaches his disciples that the plan that God created before the foundation of the earth for him to be the redeemer of the lost souls of the world was about to happen. What an amazing three verses. What an amazing time that those men got to live in. So they're walking and they get to their destination. They come to Capernaum. They come to the house that probably Peter's house where they had had their home base. It's probably the last time that they spend in this time. They have a great debate. Somebody should appreciate this in a moment. A great debate. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So, isn't it just like the disciples and us to do something like this? Here Jesus is walking down the road, revealing this amazing truth, the thing that will bring hope to all the world, the thing that will shape the gospel, that will allow us to take the gospel into all tribes, tongues, and nations. The sacrifice, the final sacrifice of sin, Jesus is talking about these things. And when they get done, the disciples start to debate who the greatest is going to be in that kingdom. Who's going to be the most important? And they start listing off the reasons. Probably somebody said, well, you know, Jesus takes us off by ourselves sometimes and you guys get left behind. Remember just last week, you couldn't get the demon out and here we come. And somebody probably says, well, you know, he entrusts us with the money. But either way, right there, they're having these debates and all of these reasons as to why they are the greatest. But I want you to notice something about this. The sermon might get personal here for a few moments, but I want you to hear this. Jesus questions them. And verse 33 says, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Does Jesus not know? No, he knows, he answers. He answers them and they didn't answer him. Of course he knows what they're disputing or discussing on the road. Of course he knows. But what does he do? Here's what he does. And here's what needs to happen in churches today that doesn't happen as much as it should. He confronts sin. He says, what are you doing? What are you talking about amongst yourselves? I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you these great truths. We're on our way to pay for your sins and all of this is happening around us. And you're worried about who the greatest is? He calls them out on their sin immediately. This is part of the problem in the church in America today. We don't want to make anybody feel guilty. We don't want to make anybody feel any sort of shame. The very first thing that happens when Jesus answers them is they felt shame. It's the first thing that happens. Look in verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They kept silent. I've been caught. If it's silent for too long, something's wrong. Okay? Go check. Something bad's happening. But Jesus calls their sin. He says, So tell me what you were talking about. Tell me about this discussion. And immediately the disciples are like, man, I don't think I want to say. I don't want to discuss that anymore. 
And so we see what the reason for the debate is. Again, in verse 34, it says they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who's the greatest? While Jesus is talking about suffering and dying, they're discussing who the greatest is. Not long after, Jesus has proved at the transfiguration that he is the greatest, they're worried about who is the greatest. Who's the greatest among them? Jesus is. It ain't you, buddy. Your life as a disciple is to be about making Jesus great. It's about making him known as being the greatest. It has nothing to do with your status or your being great. It has everything to do with you making him be known to be great. So again, real quickly, what's the source of this debate? This was a place of challenge and conviction for me even this week as I study this passage of Scripture. Why would they be debating that? Why would they want to know who the greatest is going to be? I think there's probably only really one answer, and it's pride. Jesus calls out their pride. They wanted to sit at the prominent place. They wanted their name to be known and remembered. They wanted to have authority. They were making the work of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the church of Jesus about them rather than about him. And so Jesus calls them out. Church, here's the truth. I and we more times than we would like to admit, need to have our pride called out as well. You see, we live in an I and me culture. And we bring that into the church too many times. This is about me. What can I get out of this? Does anybody know my name? Am I on this? Am I there? What did I get out of this? I didn't like the way I was treated. I didn't think that I was being treated fairly. We have to be careful where we get our theology, and I'm not going to tell you that you should get it from old country songs, but I am going to quote one this morning. There's an old country song that says, it's my belief pride is the chief cause and the decline in the number of husbands and wives, but it's my belief that pride is the chief cause and the decline in the number of churches who serve together in love and harmony, of friendships that last, of denominations and conventions of small groups, Sunday school classes. I believe that more churches have split over the sin of pride than they have of anything else. More friendships, more relationships, even within the church. Because I didn't get what I want. Because it didn't work out the way I wanted. My kid didn't get this. And so what we see is that pride is the issue. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, and 19, you've heard this many times, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall Better to be a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so here's what I want you to see. It's easy sometimes when we talk about sin, when we just say the sin, when we give examples, it's easy to say, oh, well, he's just being that, you know, he's being difficult and he doesn't want to give me any freedom and blah, blah, blah. We talk about those things because we believe that pride goes before a fall and we love you too much to let you fall in it. That's why Jesus is speaking this. That's why Jesus calls them out. He doesn't call them out because he wants them to feel terrible. He doesn't call them out because he enjoys being ruthless in his words. He doesn't enjoy watching them fall in silence over their words. What Jesus loves is for a person to repent 
What Jesus loves is for a person not to fall into the pits of sin. What Jesus loves is for a person to follow Him and glorify Him with their lives. And so He lovingly calls them out because He knows that pride comes before a fall, because that spirit becomes before destruction. He knows the direction that pride can take. He's seen it happen over and over and over again throughout history. Think about how many men, even godly Old Testament men, took falls because of their pride. You could say that David took a fall because of his lust. I would say David fell because of his pride. Because David looked at Bathsheba and said, I'm the king and I can have whatever I want. And because it's about me, I get to have her. Over and over again, we see pride sneak in. Pride is the source of the dispute. But here's what's great about Jesus. What I tend to do is just stand up here and say, stop being proud, point fingers. But Jesus says, well, actually, if you want to be great, I'll tell you how. And that's what he does. Look in verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. He says, what are you talking about? They said, we're talking about who's going to be the greatest. He says, oh yeah, if you want to be great, this is how you're going to have to do it. If you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want to have a life that matters, if you want to have a life that has an impact eternally in people's lives, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to have to be last. You're going to have to be last. That word last just means lowest or least honored. It literally means the opposite of proud. It means humble. He says, if you want to be great, and I just want you to hear this. He's saying, and I want you to. I want you to be great in this kingdom. You're going to have to do it through humility. You're going to have to put yourself last. Not with some sort of false words of, you know, oh, I'm terrible. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about loving your neighbor in a way where you put your neighbor in front of you. Loving your wife or your husband in a way that you put them in front of you. Loving your church in a way where your desires come second. Loving each other that way. Certainly putting Jesus first. I was reading these words of Jesus this morning in my office and didn't have this in my notes and honestly had never even read it this way before, but I just really quickly just want to throw this at you. I believe that Jesus is showing them how to be great, but he's also showing them how to be last. Listen to this. If anyone desires to be first, if you keep desiring to be first, he shall be last. If you keep making your life about yourself, if you keep making yourself the most important person in the room, you'll be the only person in the room. So he says, if you want to be great, you need to be last, but you also need to serve. He shall be last of all and servant of all. That word servant there in the Greek is the word diakonos. It's the word that we get deacon from. We've been doing deacon training with four, five, six guys. And one of the things that we've been talking about is to be a deacon is not a step up, it's a step down. It's not an elevation, it's rather a step underneath. It's saying I'm willing to serve underneath people. I'm willing to not be known. I'm willing to lift others up with no one seeing me do it. When the first deacons were called in the book of Acts, there's a problem with food distribution and the apostles say, should we leave the studying of the Word and prayer so that we can serve tables? That's what he's talking about. Friends, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, humble yourself and serve one another. Love your neighbor. Care for them. Uphold them. Encourage them. 
physically and spiritually serve them. I can't even tell you how many times my dad made himself last in our home so that I could be first. I want to read you one more verse. Mark 10, 45 says this. This is Jesus explaining his greatness. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Friends, you will never be more like Jesus than when you are humbly serving people around you. You will never be more like Jesus than when you're serving someone next to you. So the last part of this text, Jesus gives a real-life example as to what it means to serve and to care for people. A real-life example as to how to be great in the kingdom of God. Look with me quickly in verses 36 and 37. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I don't know who this child is or where he came from or whatever, but somehow there's a child in the midst and Jesus goes and picks him up and brings him into the group and he's holding this child. And he says, this is how you serve. This is how you make yourself last. This is how you care for one another. You receive this child or you accept this child. Now, some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem too difficult. But see, here's what we have to understand in that culture, and unfortunately increasing in ours. Children weren't as valued as they should be. You see, the life expectancy of a lot of children wasn't very long. A majority of kids didn't make it past three, four, five years old. And so the families in that culture wouldn't really look at that child as very valuable until he got older or she got older because they didn't know if they were going to make it. And so when Jesus picks this child up, he's picking up someone who, in the eyes of many, who would have been around him as insignificant. But Jesus says, no, no, this child may be forgotten from you. It may be insignificant to you, but he is not insignificant to me. And so he picks up this child and he says, I will receive him. I will take care of him. You see, what Jesus is saying is that if we want to serve one another, we must accept or receive those who cannot, hear this, cannot accept or receive you back. If your love and your care within your home, within your work, and certainly within your church is merely transactional, you have a pride problem and you're doing it wrong. Do you hear that? If it is transactional, if my love for you is dependent upon your love for me, if my service to you is dependent upon your ability to serve me back, you're wrong. You've messed it up. You're only serving yourself. Do you hear that? You're not serving the other person. You're serving them so you get something in return. Here's the picture of the child, right? Those of you dads, you remember when your children were little tiny? And they couldn't do anything. They were always needy. They always needed something. They're needy. They can't repay you. Listen, the financial input that you put into your children, you will never receive back from them. They can't pay you back. They're the most vulnerable. They're the most helpless. And Jesus says, these are the people to receive. These are the people to love.
Love your neighbor, not so your neighbor loves you back. Love your neighbor because your neighbor deserves your love. You see, that's where pride ends. As a person who has been in pastoral ministry for a dozen years now, that's been tested in my life over and over and over again. I've been asked to do things, to be completely honest, that I just did not want to do. I don't know what's in this for me, and the answer is nothing. Nothing's in it for me, but the glory of God is in it for him. Too many times I've had to swallow my pride and say, Ben, what's getting in between you and this service is your own pride. Humble yourself and serve your neighbor. Care for those who can't care for themselves. So in conclusion, today at this very moment, the eternal establishment of the kingdom of God, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the return of Jesus Christ is happening today because we have a sovereign king who promises it will. Secondly, my heart for you is two things. One, that your pride would not lead to a fall, but that your service would lead to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And the well done you receive in heaven will be a robust, crown-filled well done because you were willing to serve those who could not serve you back.